If you come ashore from the Atlantic at Quilty and keep walking southeast, you'll eventually, after an hour or so, arrive at the village of Mullock, County Clare. It's at the top of a small hill on an isolated stretch of what they now call the Wild Atlantic Way. The nearest town of any size is four miles to the north, the heaving metropolis of Milltown Malbay, population 829. On the edge of Mullock, of a winter's night, there's nothing but the dim glow of isolated farmhouses and the dark, flat, treeless hills stretching out below in every direction. So, whatever was terrifying the people of Mullock as 1926 turned to 1927, it wasn't a rogue shadow, a trick of the light. It couldn't have been. As the locals themselves pointed out, there was nothing to cast a shadow on those dark, lonely roads. So what was it? What had struck the fear of God into an entire village? Why were the people of Mullock cowering behind locked doors as soon as the sun sank towards the sea? These local apparitions can sometimes be hard to pin down. People's experiences differ. People agree on certain details of what they saw, but not on others. But that wasn't the case in Mullock. No, every time the figure was seen, local people described the exact same thing. It wasn't a ghostly monk or the restless spirit of a sailor washed up with the Armada at nearby Spanish Point. No, what locals described seeing, sometimes in two places at once, was always the faceless figure of a man in a trench coat, and beneath the trench coat, the uniform of the Irish volunteers. The figure had a rifle slung across its shoulder, and a revolver clutched in its hand, and it was marching, alone, directionless, and silently, without any footsteps that echoed in this world, along the moonlit country roads between Mullock and Bonavella. By January of 1927, no one in Mullock was willing to venture out after dark for, for any reason, for fear of seeing the figure, or being seen by it. That was until one evening, not long after New Year's Day, when one foolhardy local, overcome by curiosity, ventured out alone into the gathering darkness. In the pitch black of a January night, as the lamps of Mullock winked out one by one behind him, this intrepid lone villager felt his way along the rough stone walls and hedgerows that led to the edge of town, the place where the figure had most often been seen. And he waited, and he prayed that God would protect him, despite his foolishness, from whatever might be coming his way, from whatever was coming his way. They say an old soldier never dies. The figure now emerging over the slope of the road 
was certainly a soldier, but not a living one. At least not in any sense that the terrified local understood. But still, he, he held his nerve until the figure was almost upon him. And then he screamed, Who are you? What do you want? And instantly wished he hadn't. The figure stopped suddenly in its tracks. It turned sharply to face him, raised its right hand, and snapped a smart military salute before marching away noiselessly into the black night. That story, in one form or another, was reported in deadly earnest by numerous Irish newspapers between January of 1927 and December of 1928. News travelled a lot slower in those days. And it's the perfect place to begin this journey through Ireland's haunted history. Ireland has a rich heritage of supernatural folklore and storytelling. But much of that heritage deals with myths and legends and the folk terrors of the Shanachie's fireside. With all due respect to that tradition, we're going to focus mostly on the stories and the happenings that struck fear into Irish hearts in more sceptical, more modern times. We're also less interested in proving or disproving anything than we are in looking at why these stories, these events, resonated with people at a given place and a given time. The ghosts behind the ghosts, if you will. The ghostly volunteer of Mullock is a perfect example. Why did the idea of a dead or undead military spectre seem so plausible or so resonant to the people of County Clare in 1926? Well, sure, it was a more superstitious, less sophisticated time, but there's more to it than that. Ireland had been continuously mired in bloodshed from 1914 to 1923 in, in various conflicts from the First World War to the Civil War. Mullock itself had been haunted by the shadow of war. Two local priests were arrested in 1920 and the village church was shot up by rampaging black and tans. Just up the road at Milltown Malbay, British forces had opened fire on a crowd of civilians, killing three and wounding ten. Or could the ghost have been the restless spirit of one of John Redmond's volunteers, drifting home from the shores of Gallipoli or the banks of the Somme? Or maybe the sightings were dredged up from the uneasy conscience of a country which had been wracked by civil war just a few years earlier. Or maybe no one saw any ghost at all. The earliest report reads like a, a bitter satire or a, a coded warning to Republicans that Free State spies were roaming the County Clare countryside. It might just have been a, a local in-joke taken up too literally by the national media. We'll never know the truth, of course, but then that's the appeal of the ghost story. What you're willing to accept is bound up with so many other beliefs about religion, about spirituality, about the nature of the universe. However, our next ghostly tale 
of the Wild Atlantic Way is possibly unique in that I can assure you here and now that the events happened exactly as I'm going to describe to you. And it begins on the other side of the Atlantic. In the early years of the 20th century, thousands upon thousands of emigrants left the shores of Connacht for new lives in the new world. One of them was a young man from Clifton County, Galway, a young man named Michael Faherty. Like many Galway exiles before and since, Michael wound up in the next parish over, New York. He quickly found work as a sand hog, that's the New York name for an underground labourer, those who dig and maintain the tunnels and subways beneath the roaring city above. He had two advantages in getting that job. One, he was desperate enough to do it, and two, he was Irish. In fact, to this day, most New York sandhogs are Irish or of Irish descent. Shout down a New York manhole cover for Mulcahy or Sullivan, and a hard hat is sure to pop up into the street with a big Irish head peeping out below. It's a dirty, dark, dangerous job now, and it was even more so in 1907, when Michael Faherty found himself working the tunnels under Brooklyn Bridge. Now, of all the hazards a sandhog faced in those days, from cave-ins to fires to electrocution, the most terrifying, the most deadly and the most feared was gas exposure. That day, sweating and toiling beneath Brooklyn Bridge, Michael Faherty never even heard the warning. Within seconds, he was overcome by the deadly fumes and crumpled to the ground. As the gas gradually dissipated, his colleagues rushed into the tunnel to try to help him, but they were too late. Like many an Irishman before him, Michael Faherty's life had ended in those dreary iron caverns beneath the vast indifference of New York City. A sandhog's life was cheap, and as Michael's limp body was carried away, the tunnel once again began to echo to the clang of pick and shovel, barely missing a beat. Above ground, doctors made one last futile attempt to revive the young Clifton man, but their efforts were hopeless. And so, Michael Faherty was laid out on a cold, hard slab in a New York morgue, 3,000 miles from home, and covered with a sheet to await whatever burial his meagre means would stretch to. Now, you can imagine that working in a New York City morgue in 1907 would make you pretty inured to shock and horror and disgust. On an average day at the office, you might see victims of horrific industrial accidents, cholera outbreaks, 
drunken street violence, gang violence. The slender threads of human life snapped in an instant and seldom neatly. But on that day, when the attendant walked back into the morgue, the morgue where Michael Faherty lay dead amongst the row of corpses, he saw something that must have terrified even him. Because, alone and surrounded by the dead, a sound reached his ears, the last sound you would ever hope to hear in a morgue. The faint noise of a sheet rustling. Hoping, praying that it might be a, a rat which had found its way into the morgue, the attendant cautiously approached the rustling sheet, gripped it as firmly as he dared, and pulled it away to reveal a body writhing on its slab, the body of Michael Faherty. The terrified attendant screamed for help. Those who came reassured him that he wasn't imagining things. Whether through a medical miracle or a medical negligence, Michael Faherty had entered the morgue a dead man and walked out very much alive, breathing fresh air into his ravaged lungs. Now, you might think that coming to life on a mortuary slab would be enough of a brush with the supernatural to last anyone a lifetime, or an after-lifetime. But fate had other plans for the soul of Michael Faraday. Many of those who left Ireland for North America in the early years of the 20th century would never see their native land again except in crude depictions on the vaudeville stage or on flickering cinema screens. But not so for Michael Faherty. He eventually decided that the grass wasn't greener on the other side of the Atlantic, and he returned home to the pleasant seaside town of Clifton County Galway. There he ran a small shop on the fringe of the Atlantic, a long way from the subterranean horrors of New York City, until in his early 60s, the rigours of a hard life took hold, and Michael Faherty retired to the county home for the elderly and infirm at Lochray in the summer of 1937. Not a luxurious abode, in fact, it had been a workhouse until a few years previously, but it was a chance to rest after a lifetime of toil. He'd been there for just a few weeks when a telegram messenger arrived at the home of Miss Anne Ward, Michael's niece, in Cladadoff, County Galway. Now in those days, telegrams seldom bore good news, at least for ordinary working people, and Anne would have felt a rising sense of dread as she stood in her kitchen and peeled the envelope open. Sure enough, there it was, in stark black letters. Just a few weeks into his hard-earned retirement, her beloved uncle, 
Michael Faherty, had passed away at the county home on September 20th, 1937. And this time, there could be no miraculous recovery. Michael Faherty's body was sealed in its coffin and sent back to Connemara. At low tide on a September day, Michael's family and friends accompanied his coffin across the causeway to Omi Island, where he was buried in the family plot of the ancient cemetery there. Afterwards, the large crowd of mourners trudged home with their tears and their memories of a decent and well-liked man before the tide cut the cemetery off from the mainland again. And there Michael lay, surrounded by the Atlantic, among the bodies and bones and crumbling headstones of the Clifton Faherty's for all eternity. And that should have been the last that anyone saw of Michael Faherty in this life. But what happened next would terrify an entire community, and it would be so widely witnessed that it would make front-page news across the country. One October evening, not long after the funeral, Michael's old friend Tommy was walking along Market Street in Clifton when he heard a familiar voice call his name. He turned, and then turned white. The voice, the face, and the body belonged to the man he'd just seen buried on Omi Island. Tommy ran in sheer blind terror. As word spread across town, the sloping streets of Clifton rang out to the sound of doors being locked and bolted against this unearthly return of Michael Faherty, or whatever had taken on his likeness. This wasn't mass hysteria or an urban legend that grew legs or grew in the telling. Dozens of sober, respectable people saw, actually saw, the dead man make his way up Main Street. They saw him knock on an unbolted door. They saw the door pulled open by an unwary neighbour. And then they saw their neighbour faint and fall to the ground. As Michael Faherty turned slowly to face the people of Clifton, cowering in their doorways. Restless souls, they say, return to earth for all sorts of reasons, to finish what they left unfinished, to pass on messages or warnings, to settle old scores from beyond the grave. But Michael Faherty had a, a much better reason for turning up on Main Street that October evening. Because Michael Faherty wasn't dead. A few days later, seated by the fire in Anne Ward's kitchen, Michael told the whole story to the man 
from the Connacht Tribune. He had seen the funeral party make its way from the county home to Connemara, but as he told the reporter, it never occurred to him that it might be his own. As it transpired, A. Michael Faherty from Connemara had died at the county home on the 20th of September, but that man was from Carra Row, not Clifton. The home had sent the telegram to the relatives of the wrong man. Michael seems to have taken the whole thing in surprisingly good humour, but then this wasn't his first time returning from the dead. As he chatted to the Connacht Tribune, Michael gestured out the window towards Omi Island. Out there in my family burial ground, he said, my relatives buried someone that they thought was me. But I don't look very dead, do I now? And indeed, he doesn't. The photo on the front page of the Evening Echo shows an upright gentleman, dressed neatly in jacket and tie, smiling genially from beneath his broad-brimmed hat. He's standing outside a neat, whitewashed cottage with his arms around his niece's children, who still, according to their mother, thought he might just be a ghost. Of course, there is still a tragic element to this story. The Michael Faherty, who was buried in the wrong grave, was a casual labourer with no family. He spent his whole life digging potatoes up and down East Galway, and when he passed away there was no one to claim his body. His remains were exhumed from Omi Island and buried back at Mount Pleasant Cemetery in Loch Ray. As for Michael Faherty of Clifton, late of New York and later still of the county home Loch Ray, as far as I can tell, he passed away for the third and final time in 1942, and his incredible story has been little told since. But if you do ever find yourself in the beautiful old graveyard of Omi Island, spare a thought for the Clifton man who died three times, and for the man who was briefly buried in his grave. For our last tale tonight, and I do hope you're listening at night, we're heading further down the coast to the swooping heights and golden beaches of County Kerry. Now just a word of warning on this one. The previous two stories were taken directly from contemporary sources and national newspapers and I can stand over every detail of them and point you to all the relevant sources. This one, well it belongs to what's sometimes euphemistically called the oral tradition. I heard this story directly, near where it happened, or supposedly happened, from one of the people it supposedly happened to. And while I have heard other accounts, they all originate with this same individual. It sounded more like an urban legend to me at the time, and to be honest, it still does, but I'll let you use your own judgment once you've heard all the details. As the Italians say, say, non è vero, è ben trovato. With all those caveats, this is a story 
of Ireland's not-so-swinging 60s and the strange fate of a County Kerry show band called The Stylers. Now, for those who don't know, Irish show bands grew out of the big band orchestras of the 1940s. And by the standards of the time, they were pretty racy stuff. Instead of a row of balding trombone players in dinner jackets, the show bands offered energetic young crooners in bright, matching costumes, belting out a mix of old standards and newer tunes. Well, you ask me if we're gonna be together, and I tell you yes, we're gonna be together, but when you ask how long we'll be together, here is all I can say, can a bluebird fly? It wasn't quite Elvis, and it wasn't even Bill Haley, but it filled the dance halls and at one time every dot on the map of the Irish countryside had its own dance venue, which were often just glorified cowsheds with names like the Paradise or the Golden Palace of Dreams. As for the Stylers, well, they weren't quite as successful as the Clipper Carlton who you just heard there. Uh, they were a youthful seven or eight piece band from the Dingle Peninsula and on this particular Sunday evening in the mid-1960s they were making their way from Dingle to the town of Kilorglan in the back of a beaten up Ford Thames. It was a big deal whenever a show band rocked up to this sleepy town at the foot of the McGillicuddy Reeks. Other than the famous Puck Fair and the annual pantomime Glorglan didn't get a whole lot of excitement. In fact, it had only just been hooked up to the electrical grid in 1963. So the Ushin Ballroom would have been packed to the rafters with swinging young bachelors and local Colini from as far afield as Beaufort and Glencar. The Stylers, as we said, weren't destined for stardom, but they could pound out a decent tune, and a good night was being had by all. As the bell of St. James's Church chimed out midnight, the dancers caught their breath ahead of the last hour of music, which is always the most hectic of the night. And so, as the rest of the band took a breather, the Styler's main vocalist, was a young man called Con or Colum, stepped forward to sing something slower and more reflective. He remembered a ballad that his, his uncle or his aunt had taught him when he was a child. A strange, melancholy song that he liked to sing because it showed off his vocal range. The ballad was known locally by several different names, but it was introduced by the singer on the night as Wandering Moonlight. And it started with these words, or words that were very similar. Wandering moonlight, I'll wander with you, pale as a memory of one gone before, a light on the names of those who I loved, then leave me in darkness 
wandering moonlight. And that was as far as he got, because he was immediately drowned out by cries and whistles from the crowd. The bewildered band were ushered off stage and into the dressing room as the promoter came out to try and quieten the audience. You see, as it turned out, Wandering Moonlight was a song popular around West Cork and Kerry at the turn of the century, although it didn't have a typically Irish melody, so no one quite knew where it came from. For whatever reason, the superstitions of the countryside at the time being what they were, it came to be associated with bad luck and tragic events. It was reportedly being played by an organist just before a cinema fire broke out in Killarney in the 1930s. In fact, the reputation went back a lot further than that, to the extent that, and again, this sounds like an urban legend, but it is still still told in, in certain parts of West Cork and Kerry today, it was said that one of the passengers who boarded the Titanic at Cove in 1912 heard a porter whistling the tune, and got straight off the ship. And then, when he heard word of the sinking afterwards, he walked straight into a monastery, and he stayed there for the rest of his life. So those were the kinds of stories and the kinds of superstitions that were circulating about this song in West Cork and Kerry at the time. Of course, the Stylers knew none of this beforehand, but they had heard stranger things on the byroads of, of Munster, so they took the lecture that the promoter gave them, and after an interval of 10 or 15 minutes, they had a quick swig of Club Orange, and they ventured back out into the cavernous hall to find it completely silent. The dancers were still there, but they were standing motionless with their backs to the wall. And instead, seated in the middle of the hall, were three priests in cassocks with their arms folded. Now, they weren't there to complain about the noise or the immoral dancing. After all, the, the church owned the town's other dance hall. But word travels fast in a small town. And when the priests heard the commotion and heard what it was about, they must have convened a kind of spiritual council of war. It was decided there and then that the band would return to the stage, that the singer would sing Wandering Moonlight right through to the end, and that whatever evil or misfortune supposedly lurked within that song, it would be drawn out by the presence of three of God's warriors and cleansed from that place forever. As well as that, I suspect that the priest saw a chance to put a local superstition to bed for good and all. And so, at the priest's urging, Con or Colum stepped to the microphone in the silent auditorium. He blinked in the spotlight, cleared his throat, and began to sing. Wandering moonlight, I'll wander with you, pale as a memory 
of one gone before, a light on the names of those who I loved, then leave me in darkness, wandering moonlight. And this time, he continued right through to the final verse, which went like this. Where dwell they now, who walked in your beams? What dream beyond dreams holds them forever? Why yet do I feel cold eyes behold me, in sadness and silence, in wandering moonlight? As the final note rang out in the echoing hall, the three priests stood up without a word, turned on their heels and walked out onto Evora Road. To break the silence, the Stylers played a half-hearted chorus of the national anthem and bid their audience good night. And that's when it happened. It started, so I'm told, as a low rumble, a low rumble in the distance, a rumble that grew louder and louder and closer and clearer, a sound that was ominous and threatening but vaguely familiar. And it kept growing louder and louder until, in this rural community, everyone began to recognise it for what it was. It was the clatter of stampeding cattle, dozens of them, if not hundreds of them. And somehow it was still growing louder until the deafening sound of hooves filled the hall from the streets outside. It seemed to be coming from every direction at once, rushing towards the Oshin from Langford Street and Market Street and down the steep road at Sun Hill. The hall had already descended into outright panic, and then came the thumps. Loud, crashing thumps of what sounded like Enormous creatures, colliding with the walls of the ballroom, rattling the doors and the windows, as the young men and women inside clung to one another and screamed in terror. The bangs and the thumps grew louder and louder, until finally they reached a crescendo and began to echo away in the direction of Bridge Street. And then all was silence once more, except for the buzz of the electric light in the dance hall. As the terrified crowd began to pick themselves up from off the dance floor and from under the chairs, the caretaker suddenly remembered the three priests who'd left the building just moments before the stampede began. Together with the band members, he opened the door and ran outside to find the three priests walking casually in the direction of Mill Road. When they caught up with them, the priests were bemused 
They'd seen no cattle, heard no hooves, dodged no deadly stampede. The eldest of the priests looked the band up and down in their wild hair and striped blazers and ruffled shirts and said, Are you sure it wasn't a herd of pink elephants you saw altogether? And walked away, shaking his head. Beyond the walls of the Oshin ballroom, all was quiet in Kalorglan that night. No one had seen or heard anything out of the ordinary. It was just another dark winter's evening in the shadow of the mountains. For whatever reason, musical curses or anything else, the Oshin ballroom went rapidly downhill after that night. It lost most of its custom to its local rival at the CYMS. And although it struggled on for a while, it was a sorry shell of itself by the time it was torn down and replaced with a branch of Allied Irish Bank, which still stands on the site today. As for the Stylers, after their disastrous experience in Kilorglan, the band didn't last too much longer themselves. The stigma of what had happened at the Oshin, which circulated as an urban legend on the showband scene, probably didn't help. They tried to rebrand as the Mysterious Group X, but there was, unbelievably, already a band in McCroom with that name, so they gigged as the Seasiders for a while, but eventually broke up in some disharmony not too long afterwards. None of them stayed in show business, and none of them kept in touch with one another in the years and decades that followed. The man who told me that story was the bass player with the Stylers. He's now long since retired from board Namona and living in Killarney these past 20 years. He's never set foot in Kalorglan since. As to its veracity, all I can say is that he certainly seems to believe it happened exactly as he described, and he tells the story vividly enough, as anyone who's ever met him in the bar of Scott's Hotel will testify, I'm sure. All I can tell you about the song Wandering Moonlight is that there is a Victorian ballad with a similar theme and title in the collection of the Bodleian Library at Oxford, though I can't say for certain that it's the tune he described to me because I haven't managed to hear it yet. Now, when people know you're interested in, in these things, they do occasionally tend to spin you the odd yarn as far as I'm concerned, a story is a story, true or otherwise, and I'm always glad to hear one. But I will say that it was only when he told me this last bit that he seemed genuinely uneasy himself. He told me that although he can remember the words of Wandering Moonlight, he's long since forgotten the melody but it does sometimes come back to him in snatches, just as he drops off to sleep. And it's always the last verse that he hears. Where dwell they now who walked in your beams? What dream beyond dreams holds them forever? Why yet do I feel cold eyes behold me? In sadness and silence, 
in wandering moonlight. Alas, when he wakes up in the morning, the tune is gone again. But whenever this happens, whatever he dreams about afterwards, he always has the sense that something alien or foreign or something that shouldn't be there is dreaming with him. It's like, as he said to me, something in that song is watching me dream. I do hope nothing is watching you dream tonight, and I hope you'll come back to us for another journey through the haunted history of Ireland. If anything you heard tonight frightened or disturbed you, please remember that, true or otherwise, these are only stories, and a story never hurt anyone. Except, well, I might tell you that one next time. Good night.